This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi everybody, welcome back to Bumping Into, a very special podcast. This is one of the interviews or I guess conversations that I had on my wish list and I was uh, very, very honoured to be able to, uh, to speak with this particular guest. My guest today is Dick Smith, um, Australian businessman, entrepreneur, philanthropist, political activist, aviator, which holds several world records, um, but he is also widely regarded and loved as one of the genuine nice guys of Australian business. I was lucky enough to bump into Dick Smith on the eve of his new book, which is called My Adventurous Life. It's available now for anyone that's interested. I got to ask some of the questions that I've always wanted to ask Dick Smith, uh, and he offers his very open and honest thoughts about his story so far. I am sure you are going to enjoy this conversation very much. This is virtually unedited, as it happened, um, conversation with myself and Dick Smith. Thank you very much, Dick, for, for the call. I really, I really appreciate your time. I it's a pleasure, absolute pleasure. You're, you're a very busy man. Yep, very busy, lots on, that's good. <laughs> well, look, Dick, I know you're, you're flat out and I'm super thankful for your time. Um, I wanted to, uh, first of all, congratulations on the new book that you've got coming out. Thank I, you. I saw that, uh, the cover page there and that, uh, it looks like it's going to be a really well-produced, you know, nicely finished book. The first thing I wanted to ask you uh, is, so if I look at my list of, of all the things that you are and the things you have done... Um, You've got entrepreneur, you're an aviator, a philanthropist, a political activist, you hold aviation world records. When you have to fill out a form, what do you put down as your occupation? Uh, I put down pretty boring, either <laughs> adventurer or uh, more often company director. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. I've always wondered about someone like yourself that's got such a broad spectrum of, of things under their belt and so many things happening. But yeah, okay. Can I take you back? Uh, obviously, born in the 1940s in in Sydney, I'm assuming. Yes, that's right. I'm 77 years of age. Well, you, you're a young 77. You definitely don't show 77. Now, I was doing a little bit of research, and I saw here now, allegedly you, you you know it's that you weren't that great at school academically. You weren't known as being that great, which is no. Really I was. I was uh, you know, I was completely hopeless at school and until uh, about the age of 16. Uh, for example, when I was in fifth class, I've got my school report which I, where I came 45th out of 47th in the, in the school, in the school class at the time. And uh, so I really battled as a school child. Fortunately, when I got to, finally got to my leaving certificate, I managed to do okay. Wow, that's that is interesting because even um, a lot of other people that I would class, you know, yourself as being very smart and very savvy, common sense, rich, and all the rest of it. Even like Kerry Stokes, he struggled a lot at school as well. So that's it's an interesting thing that textbook smart doesn't always equate to future success and world smart. Yes, I think you're right. It's uh, I don't know just what the story was with me when I was younger, but as my book covers, I was completely hopeless and. I put this in the book hoping that there are probably parents and grandparents around who are, who are worried about their children or grandchildren being pretty dumb at school and not performing well. One of my chapters is, it's called, what, Whatever Will Happen to Dick? Because it appears my parent, parents used to say to each other, 
what, whatever will happen to Dick. They were so worried about me and they thought it, there was something sort of mentally wrong with me. And that's, look, that's obviously very important that you do put that out because I'm sure that there are people um, that do, you know, obviously are quite self-critical and all the rest of it. And when they hear something like that come from someone like yourself, I, I think that would lift a lot of weight off the shoulders and believe that it is okay to not be a textbook A-grade student, that there are paths and opportunities. Um, like for, Yes, you, I de- you, definitely you agree with you. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, you you got started with Dick Smith Electronics. That That, when you started... Tell me if I'm wrong. You were a repairman. A repairman. Were you repairing? Uh, was it taxi radios oh, or something like that? Absolutely right. Yes, I started my business, Dick Smith Electronics. I started it with six hundred and ten dollars, and it was called Dick Smith Car Radio. And I repaired taxi cab two way radios, and also sold car radios to people. In those days, in 1968. Car, most cars came without a car radio and stereo hadn't been invented. So that's where I made my money, installing car radios and two-way radios. And then from there, you turned that into, obviously, the retail giant, I guess, that it became. Yes. It, look, it's, it's interesting. That's a major part of my life, which I cover in the book, how one day I went to buy some electronic components to fix the car radios. And the company, it was in... in uh, Clarence Street in, in a city called George Brown, and the service was just so bad that I thought, look, I should start selling components, and that got me into the Dick Smith Electronics components business, and I was able to do really well out of it. And from obviously at that point, it was a small business, and I know something that uh, you know, as a small business owner, you you there's a lot of pressure that you never turn off. It, it's always you. It's your name on the door. It's your responsibility. It's and. Is, was, can you pinpoint in that time when you, you decided, okay, let's turn this into a retail shop, let's go outwards, is there a defining moment when you thought to yourself, wow, okay, I've made it or, or I'm comfortable, I've got, I'm not going week to week or day by day, we, we now got a little bit of a buffer in the bank, all of a sudden my lifestyle's changed and there's now a progression that's, you know, you're not treading water as a lot of small businesses can do for a long time before anything happens. Is there that defining yeah. moment? Yes, there certainly was, and that was um, I started selling the, the two-way radios and installing them and servicing car radios and did moderate, moderately well. Then when I started selling the electronic components, it never did very well, and after about four months, one of my managers suddenly resigned, and a few weeks later we found that $18,000 of stock was missing. And so I thought I was completely shocked and my accountant advised me to close the business down. He, he actually said, liquidate the business. And I didn't even know what it meant. And he said, well, you basically sell off the remaining stock and close it down. And I said, but what about the money? I will owe there. would be around about $50,000 owed. And he said, well, that's bad luck. It was a proprietary company. People gave you credit. And that was the risk they took. And he saw my shock. And so he said, well, the alternative is to uh, install a receiver. A, a receiver is a firm of accountants who will run the business with you while you pay back the debt. And I said, that's what I'll do, and I'll put it down as an expensive lesson. I'll pay, the, pay back the debts and then close it down and stick to the car radios. But the interesting thing was, in paying back the debts, I suddenly realized, wow, in selling off these electronic components, I, I started concentrating on hobbyists, and I bought out a really good Dick Smith Electronics hobbyist catalogue. And within about six months, I realised this business is going to do really well. And then the following year, 
I realised it was going to do incredibly well and uh, it was sort of saving this bankrupt business and turning it into something that I sold to Woolworths for over $20 million only seven years after. Well, only seven years? To go from $600 startup to $20 million in less than 10 years. That's exactly right. Wow, that's a... Yeah, that's a massive achievement and obviously a massive you you must have sort of stopped to reflect and go what did just happen here? That's you could never have comprehended that was coming. You're exactly right. Look, most people think when they see so-called millionaires they think oh they always want to become a millionaire. But my plan was to run my electronics business with three or four people working for me. I'd never envisaged or imagined anything bigger than that. But I was good at putting in systems and good at surrounding myself with capable people. I was good at asking advice and uh, copying the success of others. These are my success points I've just pointed out. And uh, the business started to do really well and I became a multi-millionaire when I was still in my early 30s. So after, obviously, you sold it to Woolies and then they, they ran it for quite a long time. It was still very successful as a as a major retailer for them for a very long time and almost even gave the impression that it was still very much yourself there because of the branding, the name, the logos. It all still looked very much as a a, a, a human, not a corporation as a point of contact. And then obviously that changed and it went to the, you know, the whole tech spurt generation and then it got sold. Was it at all, uh, I suppose, emotional or did you have an attachment when it, it collapsed? No, not really. First of all, well, Woolworths ran it for 27 years after I sold it to them and they turned it into a billion-dollar-a-year company and made a small fortune out of it. But they had to have perpetual growth. If you're a director of a public company, you, you're pushed by your shareholders to have eternal growth. Yeah. And I, when I sold Dick Smith Electronics to them, I had 36 shops, and I said there'd be potential to have about 100 shops. That's about the maximum potential for the number of electronic hobbyists we were selling to. But Woolworths opened 350 shops, and they started selling low-margin items like TV sets, and that's something we'd never done. And even then, they were still making money, but they couldn't get any more growth. So they sold it to a company called Anchorage Capital, and within three years it had gone broke, losing about $500 million. It was a terrible disappointment for me to see what happened, but I get lots of people who stop me in the street and they tell me how they learnt their electronics at Dick Smith Electronics or they started their career there. So there are some good things about it. Oh, absolutely. I think there would be a whole generation of kids that used to love that section down the back that had all the, the, the kit forms you know where you could buy all your componentry in a box and they you know make whatever device was the the trending product at the time uh, you know i remember that as a kid myself and that being a big deal yep. so yeah it obviously meant a lot to a lot of people um and it was just a shame the way that it all had to end and there was never a thought of you buying it back when that that t- came no i had no i'd moved on see i then had another successful business australian geographic and then i was running dick smith foods so i watched with interest and Yes, yeah, some people thought I was still involved, but anyone who did any homework realised that I'd sold it years before. And uh, I was disappointed to see it close down and uh, it was all so unnecessary. It's what I call the sheer greed that's going around in, in what I call extreme capitalism now, where you have to have perpetual growth, which is impossible. It's a finite world and people have got to get used to companies 
getting their growth from efficiencies and removing waste, not from just having more and more population and, and more and more consumer growth. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've got some notes I wanted to quiz you on that because I agree 100% with that. That's a, a dangerous mindset. Um, the, the So then obviously the next big thing that, you know, that really, uh, I suppose, away from National Geographic even is, is your Dick Smith Foods. And th- obviously 2004, that became a commercial operation and it kicked off. And then I read in 2011, you announced that you were going to take back control of the management because turnover had gone from 80 million down to 8 million. What c- c- Could you pinpoint what happened to make that you know, that massive decline? Was it bad management, poor marketing, the wrong people? uh, Was there any one or two factors that you could identify clearly that were responsible? Yes, that's interesting. I'd almost forgotten about that, but I started Dick Smith Foods purely because I had found that Vegemite was owned by Kraft. They were owned by Philip Morris, the cigarette company, and I thought, this is ridiculous. This cigarette company that's misleading our young children into buying cigarettes because they're running advertisements directed at young people. It now owns Vegemite, our famous brand. And then I found lots of other of our famous brands, Redhead Matches, Aeroplane Jelly, they're all now foreign owned and that meant all the wealth went overseas. So I started Dick Smith Foods and I ran it for three or four years, more or less part-time. And then I let the Sanitarium Health Food Company take it over, but they weren't that successful at it, and that's why I took it back and brought it up oh. to, in the end, I think we did over $400 million worth of business. We made $11 million to give to charity, so it was worthwhile. But in the end, I just couldn't compete with Costco and Aldi. They're just so cheap. They're so ruthless as probably the most astute retailers in the world. I was trying to support Australian farmers and Australian producers and once Aldi started saying they started importing their peanut butter from South America, very low costs, there was no way we could compete. And the supermarket said, look, you have to have at least, I think it was about 4 or 5% of the market to stay on our shelves. And even though lots of people tried to support us, there's no way they're going to pay a dollar more for peanut butter. It just wasn't going to happen. Which that I find incredible, that mindset, because... And that's one of the things I've got here in my notes is, you know, you, a lot of people don't realise that not only you donated $11 million to charities, that's $11 million that those charities will never get anywhere else now. That's, that's a loss and that's massive. But the work that it did for the local farmers, the producers, it, a huge, massive, massive backwards filtration of support just from having your face on these labels that maybe were 50 cents a dollar more. It is mind-blowing yep. that Joe Average could not connect the dots and say, well, we're talking 50 cents a dollar more and look at the, the, the filtration, the impact that that has, the sustainability, yep. the, the, the future generations, the farms that have been in families for 100 years, all of this can keep running for a dollar more. And I, I just find that incredible that... Joe Average, as a majority, didn't get behind further. I mean, obviously, it was a a successful business, but it it just must be so frustrating that you've put your heart and soul into it for the benefit of others, not for your pocket, and then to see that that not get that message not get across. Yes, but I I really expected that. Look, when people are in the supermarket, they're not feeling particularly patriotic. They just want to buy the food and get out of the place. I always predicted that Aldi will do incredibly well. You'll find that Aldi will end up uh, taking over 
Coles or Woolworths, one or the other. Aldi are owned by two super secretive German billionaires. They are the greediest people I would know. They're not here for charity. They're probably the most brilliant business people on earth. They're brilliant retailers. Their formula is to have about half as many staff per dollar turnover. And that would mean that Coles and Woolworths would have to sack half their staff to compete. And no one wants to see that many people out of work. So I just see Aldi and then Costco and no doubt Walmart will come here. They'll end up taking over and we'll find the two wonderful famous Australian companies, Woolworths and Coles, which share their wealth with thousands of Australian shareholders. My prediction is they'll eventually go. Yeah, and that's not going to be good for anybody as much as they're big, you know, massive companies and, and it's nice to support your IGAs and all the rest of it. You still don't want to see that transition occur on that level yeah. to that model. That's, um, that's right. You know, looking back at, at the Dick Smith, so that Dick Smith claps, the, you know, where you closed it a few years ago, you looking back with retrospect in mind, it, was there any alternative, anything that you could have done different, would have done different to have kept it going or just simply even with retrospect in mind, that's it. It was. It was what we did. Is what oh, we did. Oh no, we could have. Eat, we could have just easily made it a food, um, a, a food brand, and then got the food from the cheapest place in the world, like the others oh, do. And we could have made an absolute fortune. Yeah. It would have made. I could say it would turn into a billion dollar a year company because the brand was good, and if I'd just produced, bought my my peanut butter from South America and produced everything else wherever I could anywhere around the world it would have made an absolute fortune, but that wasn't what it was about. I wanted to support Australian farmers and Australian producers, and that's very difficult because we, we share the wealth better here. We have quite high wages, and I like that, but that means it's very hard to compete, especially when someone is just searching the world and getting the cheapest product. Yeah, absolutely. And tell me if this is this is just an idea that had popped in my head when I was doing some low-level research. Was there ever the idea of keeping that brand running as some sort of collab or a, um, an association that products could use if they met your criteria, you know, X amount of Australian ingredients, X amount of employees, X amount of this, this, that, that there was that thing of saying, you can put my face on your product and it means that, you know, you are continuing what I stood for, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not running it. Was there ever that as an option that, that came out as in supporting these local farmers? Yes, yes, I certainly supported that, but we ended up in the end thinking that it wouldn't be viable, that lots of people would jump at that idea, but then we'd send them into bankruptcy because if you can't get that percentage of sales up on the supermarket shelves, you drop yeah. from the shelves. And I didn't want to lead Aussie companies down a road where they got the whole product going, they put all the work in it, they put the Dick Smith brand on it, and I would have done it for nothing. I would have said, as long as you meet the criteria of Australian ownership and Australian-made product. Uh, but but I think what would have happened is they wouldn't be able to get the sales in the supermarkets because the prices can never be that cheap. If you employ Australians and you produce in Australia and you grow it here in Australia, it will naturally always be more expensive. And so I didn't want to see me putting companies into bankruptcy. And so that was the reason we did go ahead with that idea. Yeah. So the next, I suppose, key phase around that time is is there was murmurs that came out that you were thinking about going into politics, um, which you know, I suppose, again, out of sheer frustration of the marketplace um, and the state that we're in. And then you, you sort of, you know, you hinted at that. And that was, I, I thought, very much like a, 
throwing a dolphin into a cage full of sharks and you can only slap them around so often before you ultimately are surrounded by a cage of sharks. But instead of doing that, you did form the, um, the Fair Go um, group. Yes, you're exactly right. Look, I never really... I, I will tell people lots of times I get stopped in the street and people want me to be prime minister, they say. And I yeah. said, look, when I can be dictator, I'll take that job on. But I've run three businesses where I have been the dictator and been able to surround myself with capable people but still make those tough and quick decisions. And that's where it's virtually impossible in politics. I had two stints as chairman of the Civil Aviation Authority in Canberra and I realised how incredibly difficult the political life is. And so that's why I didn't go ahead with anything in politics. I do have the Dick Smith Fair Go group and that was to try and share the wealth a bit better. I don't know if you know, but we have something like 5 million Australians who live pay packet to pay packet. They have no savings at all. But then we have 1% of of Australians are so wealthy that they have the same wealth as the bottom 40%. And we have 100 billionaires in Australia and only 15% of them are known as philanthropists. They're so selfish, they don't even donate any money to anyone. Yeah, that's, that's, it's bad statistics when you break it down like that. Um, because obviously that, that Fair Go group was, was a, a group that you tried to influence the big parties to look at what I would say is common sense policies that you know, reflect the majority of the population. Um, yep. And is that still... Are, you know, are you still pushing that? Is that still an active thing that you're you're working? Well, on? not as much. I'm I'm trying to, and part of Fair Go, and you alluded to it to at the start of our conversation, is the fact that the political parties always talk of endless growth. They they only use the word growth. They say we must have growth, but they mean endless growth, which is impossible. And that's one of the problems. In fact, just yesterday in the Financial Review, they announced they want to go up to two million wait for 2 million immigration over four years, and that's 500,000 a year. If that continues, it will take us to 100 million in our population in about 30 years, and that's not a sensible number. Part of my Dick Smith Fair Go campaign was that we have to live in balance. We should. I'm very pro-immigration. I think it's what's made Australia fantastic, but, uh, but at a long-term average of about 70,000 a year. Now, if we did that, 70,000 a year, with our birth rate, we'll end up stabilising our population just under 30 million. And that means most people could be well off. If you go to 100 million, it'll mean there'll be a tremendous amount of people who will be extremely poor. And that's not a good idea. No. And I think it would transform our um, our suburbs and city spaces where, where we, we can't sustain that because everyone wants to live along the, the coastline they're going to become awfully jammed and our roads are already busy enough. Our schools are already, you know, looking, they can't expand anymore. Hospitals are full. People can't get houses to rent. So and I know they say, oh, but if you bring in more, we'll make more. Well, you know, it's a bit <coughs> like the family budget. How about you sort out what you've got before you keep spending more and then we look at it. Not, not Don't re-engineer it the other way around. So, yeah, I totally no, agree. You're absolutely right. And look, we're, we're all, many people can only afford to live like termites in one of these high-rise, we no longer have the ability of kids to be free-range kids. When I was young, my mum and dad bought a block of land and built a house on it. Dad was just a, a salesman, and it had a backyard and lots of bush all around. Now, that's changing. I fly my helicopter regularly over Western Sydney, 
and it's gone from lovely houses with backyards and places where kids could play to these high-rise buildings everywhere. And we saw with the coronavirus how the high the coronavirus will go through high-rise really quickly. Oh, yeah. And we have a situation now, we're told that every generation should be better off than the, the generation before, which sounds logical. But now young couples can't buy a house with a backyard. They have to go and buy a unit if they're lucky, even if they can afford to do that. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And you become a slave to your mortgage if you can get into the market because the ratios of earnings to debt repayments aren't what they once were even 10 years ago. That's just It's just spiralling. So it's... Yep. Yeah. I absolutely agree with that. So, I mean, I, I looked at all of the policies that... Uh, you, all the ideas that you had suggested and I... Uh, you know, really, it, it's the foundations of common sense, but obviously it's... Um, you know, when you when governments tend to govern for themselves, not for the people. So, yes. Well, look, I think if people read my book, which um, comes out in November, they'll see my views on these things. And a lot of people, I think, will agree with me. And maybe there'll be some political pressure. It would be just great if one party came up with a population plan. At the moment, there's absolutely no plan at all. And that just means endless growth. And it's you commented about trying to get around on the roads at the moment. It's impossible. Well, imagine when we go to 100 million, it will be just totally madness. And most people will be the billionaires will be even wealthier, but they've got enough already. But typical Australians will be worse off. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Do Do you think someone, if you look back at, obviously, you know, you've got this book coming out now and it's, a, it's you know, containing a lot of the, the things that you've done and, and, you know, we've spoken about all your business interests and, and how, you know, vast you've crossed into various things. Do you think that someone could do what you've done today? Is there another person out there that could start that business with X amount of hundreds or, you know, a couple of thousand dollars and end up, or are we, have we passed that point where we're, we're not going to see those type of people anymore? I think we're past that point. I was only looking recently at an Electronics Australia magazine from the 1970s when I got started. And in that magazine, uh, ad after ad for small businesses, there would have been 30 different maybe 50 small businesses, whereas that's so difficult to do today, especially with people like Amazon, where they sell just about everything, Amazon and eBay. So the day of someone starting up a small business and getting it going is going to be a lot more difficult. Yes, you can run a coffee shop or a retail business. That's no problem. But it certainly changed completely from when I was, when I could build up an electronics business selling electronics components because the big companies like Radio Shack and Lafayette hadn't come to Australia yet, so I got a bit of a lead on them. Yeah. And uh, I often look at how well Aldi are doing. It's it's amazing to me that not, not one Australian in the 20 years before Aldi started here saw the Aldi formula from Europe and started off an Aldi-type retailing business. They would have done really well and would have been Australian-owned, but that never happened. That's true, yeah, yeah. And, and normally people are hunting America, Europe for the next ideas. So that's, that's a yeah, very interesting observation. Well, you say normally people are doing that. I hope you're right. Um, in my book, I mention how I got the cheapest air ticket around the world and went off to see how people were selling electronic components. And even today, I say to anyone who's listening, who's thinking of starting a business, you know, get a cheap air ticket, go around the world, see what's happening along the retail strip, something that's a bit new, and then bring that to Australia. You'll probably do okay. Yeah. 
one thing I've wondered about people like yourself, um, is there an age where you felt you were confident enough to 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 deal with any situation? I, I you know, because obviously um, when you're young, you know, well, people used to be quite reserved and shy. These days, people are, seem to be born with this abundant confidence that morphs into almost arrogance, but... Typically, you know, when you're starting in business and you're, you're sort of finding your feet and you will get pushed around and shoved around, was there an age where you were like, okay, I can walk into that room with these executives or these people and, and you know, take them on at their level and not feel at all intimidated? Yeah, I think that was when I actually sold Dixmouth Electronics for over $20 million and I'd, I'd sort of made it and I was a bit of a hero in the business media. And that gave me an immense confidence. As I explained, I was absolutely hopeless at school, had a terrible inferiority complex. And it was only when I started doing really well in business that I suddenly thought, gee, I'm good at something. And uh, so when I actually sold out to Woolworths, a lot of publicity at the time, and it gave me immense confidence. And that ended up, I had a job as the chairman of the Civil Aviation Authority. I was chairman of the Centenary of Federation Council, which celebrated Australia's 100th anniversary as a federation. So I got involved in Canberra. I was super confident and uh, confident of my abilities, which I suppose I still am, but I'm very conservative. I don't get involved in things I'm not an expert on. Yeah, 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 which is a smart way to be. Yeah, you, you know, like um, I remember Henry Ford made a comment once that uh, he, he's some, something along the lines of, um, I'm not the smartest person in the room, I just make sure that I hire him. So, yeah, that approach is obviously how you, when you were building your business, you made sure you hired the right people to fill that gap. Absolutely. One of my success forces is surround yourself with capable people. And at the end of the book, I've thanked the people who worked for me at Dick Smith Electronics, Australian Geographic and Dick Smith Foods and said, I've always surrounded myself with capable people, so thanks. And that's really where I've been able to do quite well. I can pick good people. Sometimes you have to be quite tough and fire people, you know, say that it's not working. And normally I find in the first six months you can tell whether a person is going to be suited to that job or not. And I've had the toughness to be able to say, no, it's not working. And then the, the good people, I do everything I can to keep them on side and keep them around. And I tended to do that for year after year. And is there a, a succession plan? Have you got in the back of your mind something that, you know, someone you're working with that you're like, well, they're going to carry on, be it if it was the Dick Smith Foods or if, it, if it's the Fair Go Group or any of these other projects? You know, is, the, is there... No, that no, no, no. I have two daughters who have got their own businesses in completely different fields and doing very well. And uh, we, are, we follow the Gates page. Pip and I are going to leave at least a half of our fortune to charity. Uh, and uh, and then the other half will go to our family sort of thing. But so that means there's no – because I don't have an operating business, I mainly earn my money out of investments in commercial buildings. And that's a very important thing. Lots of people I think I made my money out of electronics and out of Australian Geographic Publishing. But in fact, I've made most of my money out of investment in commercial buildings. When I went to rent – the building for Dick Smith Electronics at at Gore Hill, an advisor said to me, "Oh, Dick, you should get an advisor. You should get a, a um, option to purchase the building." And I thought that's ridiculous, but I took his advice, and from then on, whenever I could, I'd take out an option to purchase the buildings that we were renting. Mm. 
and I ended up buying lots of them, and that gave me a good commercial property portfolio. And, of course, anyone buying into commercial property over the last 40 or 50 years can not have done anything other than very well. Yeah, yep. And what is interesting is, because I watch that market uh, closely, uh, and at the moment, it you look at it and you go, how, you know, a little tilt slab 100 square metre factory they're asking 600000 for, and the rent might only be $300 a week. And you sort of go, well, once again, we've swung out of, by the time you factor in repayments, rates, rent return at the current market versus the purchase price, it's, it's, that's another avenue that is extremely hard now for someone to jump in and make money from as it was 40 years ago. Oh, no, you're absolutely right. It's a lot tougher today. And uh, I'm glad, I, in my book, I mentioned how I won the lottery of life by being born in Australia in the 40s. And yeah. I've managed to benefit from the growth, which now I say is impossible to continue with. It would be easier for me to say nothing, but I do say that the type of growth that I've benefited from can't go on forever because you just can't have more and more people forever. Uh, you know, I think 30 million would be a pretty good number for this country to go to 100 million. It's an arid country. I think we'd be making huge mistakes and end up with lots of poor people. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, is there anything in the pipeline next that's, that you're working on that you can share or, or is there no new projects? No, no, not at the moment. I'm enjoying my sort of retirement. I run my own business affairs and uh, I'm still very interested in trying to communicate politically that we have to live in balance and to try and get one of the political parties to come up with a population plan. I spend quite a lot of my time on that. I've spent a lot of time writing this book and uh, I'm glad that I've done that now because people will see that you can start a business with not much money and do quite well in, in Australia. It's, and it is still possible. It's harder, but it's still possible. Well, look, I know you, you won an order of, the, of Australia, which I guess is the country's way of, I suppose, saying thank you and acknowledging all the great things that you have done. But, um, you know, like it, you have done a lot and you do care a lot and you care genuinely for others, not for your own pockets, which is a, a, a rare find. Um, so, you know, I wanted to thank you for everything you've contributed and everything that you've built and done and said and fought for, um, you know, because it is it is important and there's few people like yourself doing it. So it doesn't go unnoticed by, by people um, and it's certainly, you know, your efforts uh, have been appreciated and I hope that your legacy lives on. I mean, we in Australia, I think, don't value our heroes even in music or, or um, in the arts like they do in other countries. You know, we, we don't place the same... Uh, the easy beats aren't looked at like the who or the rolling stones and i think we should be doing more of that so for yourself i place you up on that you know that that title there that you should forever be looked after as one of the the caring fathers of australia through the golden boom time well thank you very much and uh, my philanthropy has always been for selfish reasons and that is it makes me feel good and uh, i've uh, always thought i learned through the scouts to help other people at all time and that's been something that I've got immense satisfaction out of doing. Uh, I'm just disappointed that so many of the wealthy billionaires don't have that understanding that there's a, a responsibility to openly give back to society that you've done well out of. And we just need a few more of the billionaires to realise that. Yeah, we certainly do. We, we, we most definitely do. One other thing I wanted to just quiz you on that I thought of. I saw an interview you did a few years ago on One Plus One. 
And pull me up if any of this, this is going off memory and I only caught that interview by chance. You you mentioned when you were starting Dick Smith how you spoke to, I think it might have been your accountant, and you said to him, you know, I don't understand. We've got all these shops, we've got all these staff, but I don't have any money in my bank. And uh, tell me if this is wrong. Your accountant said something along the lines to you. He said, no, no, no you don't understand. We, we now own our stock. We've paid our taxes. We've done this. We've done that. From now on, you're going to start making money because we've done it the hard way first. Is, is that roughly right? Yeah, that was pretty right. <laughs> I, In the early days, my accountants would tell me I'm making good money, but I said, I don't have any. <laughs> and of course, you're paying your, your taxes, or your, your provisional tax in those days. And uh, I, it, it took quite a while before I realized that I was quite doing very well. And I just worked seven days a week and put everything into it. And uh, I think in the first year or might have been the second year of Dick Smith Electronics when it was still a small car radio and two-way radio repair business, I actually, my accountant said, oh, you've made more money than the Prime Minister of Australia does. And it was when he got about 30 grand a year. And that's when I said, well, well, where is it? You know, I don't have any money. And he explained why. And uh, because I was always increasing stock and I always put my money back in the business. And so instead of taking it out and spending it, I used it to expand the business and that meant I did pretty well. That message to me is so important because if you look at uh, today's society, which has normalised high debt, um, and I think that model that you've just spoken about is, you know, it's like the bird building the nest before it has the babies. So I I, I think that's such a a smart approach. Um, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, You know, I started with that $600, but never really had any debt, never dealt with bank managers. Yes, I borrowed money to buy the buildings, but when it came to running the business, I never ran it basically in debt and just put every cent I could back in until, and even, so you've got to pay in those days, it was 45 cents in the dollar tax. I still paid that and still managed to expand the business. So anyone who's listening, if you're starting a business in the early days, put everything you can back into the business and that means you have less borrowings and you've got a greater chance of doing okay. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I can't thank you enough for your time. I know you're busy. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, and I, I'm you know, happy to end it on that note because I think that's really important and it symbolises what, the, you know, the whole foundations of things you stand for, which is common an sense. Absolute pleasure, absolute pleasure to talk to you. And, um, the, uh, you know, just it's, we, we are a fantastic nation here, very lucky to be Australians and uh, keep up with what you're doing. I think it's really worthwhile. Thank you very much for staying to the end of the show. Thank you very much to Dick Smith for making the time to be on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with him and spend an hour or so uh, on the phone with Dick. I'd also like to pay a particular thanks to his assistant uh, who managed to find the time in Dick Smith's schedule to fit this thing in and we had to go back and forth and bounce a few things around. So I'm very appreciative of her time to do that and to make it all come together. Uh, As mentioned, Dick does have a new book out. Um, If you are interested in any more about his life, you will certainly enjoy the book called My Adventurous Life, which is available now. If you do think someone would enjoy the show, please feel free to share it. Um, Use the share button, any of the podcast players that we're on. Um, It is much appreciated. It is the only way that the show will grow its audience. So I am working on a couple of other really exciting conversations that are coming up as well Uh, and true to the format, crossing into a whole wide spectrum of different areas 
um, each unrelated to the other. So I hope to have a couple of more episodes to you in the next few weeks. Once again, thank you very much for sticking to the end of the show, and I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon.